I'm on the ride of a lifetime. I'm on a ship that's sailing to uncharted shore, and I won't be coming back here. Salt Lake City, Utah. This is Heart of the Matter, and I'm your host, Sean McCraney. If you have friends or family who would like to watch the show and they don't receive it in their homes, you can tell them to go to www.bornagainmormon.com. Click on the TV shows. You'll see instructions on how to watch it live through streaming video. Listen, in the house tonight, we have Mary Ellen and Janet, who gave me a beautiful little beautiful bouquet of flowers. We have Mark, uh, a.k.a. Marky, on the website. We have Reed and uh, a very handsome audience. We have Kevin and other people also helping out. So great to be here. Hey, after the show tonight, this uh, delay coming down to Denny's on 5th South for uh, Pastor in the Pub and watch television for just another 30 minutes because there's a show coming on right after mine here on TV20 called Breakdown. Long anticipated. We have been waiting for this show. I told you it was coming. Well, now it's here. It's young. It's interesting. They go out on the street. They have great hosts. One of them's LDS, I believe. One of them's Christian. I don't know. Something like that. But tune in to Breakdown right after the show. TV 20 is changing, and this is going to be one of the big changes of it. It's a live show, so be prepared for Breakdown. Shout-outs to Margaret and Catherine. To Candace, our prayers are with you, Shirley Thompson. To all the viewers in Elko, Nevada, we say hello. Alice D., Mary Ellen F., thank you for the nice card. Brad in Sugar House, Jack H. in Midvale, and Brenda Q. in Meridian, Idaho. Uh, we just give you a shout out and say thanks for your love and support and prayers. I received a lot of criticism because of that uh, trailer we showed where I was uh, quoted amongst other people, LDS author, Bushman, and these other, for a Mormon president. And one of my comments was, uh, the LDS church, I mean, they'd like to take over the world, and I think they think they can. And uh, so I've gotten emails and comments from even friends that, you know, that's just a ridiculous statement. They would never want to take over the world. I have a whole bunch of reasons for saying that, but I'm going to just give you one physical evidence you can look at yourself. If you drive on North Temple here in Salt Lake City, right before you get to State Street, there's a huge building that towers over most of the others, and it's a church office building. And as you face the church office building, there's the entrance, big entrance, and on one side, they have one hemisphere of the world carved in granite. It's giant. It's about like a, 
uh, a size of a, an Olympic-sized pool. And on the other side of the building, they have the other hemisphere of the world carved in granite. The world is on both sides of the entrances to this building. And this is the church headquarters. They didn't put Jesus. They didn't put the cross. They didn't put anything. They didn't put scripture. They put the world. So if you don't like it, too bad, because I think it still holds water. Okay. We're going to introduce to you something new tonight, and we call it the More Manipulation Moment. There should be music right now. I get, that's bad. I get all kinds of stuff from great people who always want to tell me about uh, books they have, and they give me books, and I have some wonderful articles and different things. So I want to share a couple of those things with you right now. Now, this is a book that, comes, that was printed in 1979. Now, that's about when I graduated from high school, and it's called Emma Smith, and it's written by two faithful Latter-day Saints. Now, I just want to read you a couple things that are in here. This is in the preface or in the introduction to the book. It said, that Emma had faults and perhaps failed her supreme test is truth. And then it says, Heber C. Kimball remarked on July 12, 1857, quote, Joseph stood for the truth and maintained it. She, Emma, struck against it. And where is she? She is where she is, and she will not escape until Joseph Smith opens the door and lets her out. That's a quote in the introduction to, uh, to this fine book on Emma Smith. And, and, and these things help forge the attitudes and the way people see the church. I learned these things and this type of attitude. Let me read you one more. It talks about when the people of Nauvoo all uh, had, or many of them, had malaria. They were very sick in the summer months at Nauvoo. And it says that Joseph Smith even got very sick in his family. And then it said he just said, no more of this, and he stood up. And then this is what they said about what he did. He went around and he healed people. And it says, like the Savior had done during his ministry, Joseph healed almost everyone he touched. It's, and Wilford Woodruff, one of the 12 apostles, says he simply borrowed Joseph's silk bandana and wiped it on the faces of the sick and they were healed immediately. So, uh, you know, I'm just pulling from their own stuff. You know, I'm just going to continue to do that in the Mormon manipulation moment. Now, I have one more for you. This is called Sacred Sites, and it says Searching for Book of Mormon Lands. Now, that's really a good uh, subtitle there, Searching, because they're going to be searching a long time. And yet, we've got a full page, full color just pictures of Mayans and Zarahemla, and this could possibly be the, one of the cornfields that the, the Nephites pull from. And, and I mean, this is the biggest book of fiction I've ever seen in my life, and yet it says searching for the Book of Mormon lands, and you open it up, and it's like these are the Book of Mormon lands. And this is by a PhD from Brigham Young University. This is pure spin. This is like having a book of searching for Santa's village in the North Pole. It's just insane, and yet Mormons are given this stuff, and it's a beautiful book. There's a lot of money and cost to it, and they open it, and they read it, and they really believe. And it just breaks my heart that this kind of stuff is constantly being used to manipulate you and the facts about the religion. Okay, let's move forward. The Mormon manipulation moment is over until I... Oh, no, I do have one more. Excuse me. Uh, Robert gave me a photocopy of a bunch of different things. 
And this actually comes from, I used this manual when I attended BYU, and it's the Book of Mormon Student Manual, okay? That's the cover of it. This is where this comes from, all right? And this is a quote. Um, it's on 1 Nephi 14.10, and it's titled in, the book, uh, in this book, The Church of the Devil. And it says, Elder Bruce R. McConkie defined the church of the devil in the following way, quote, the church of the devil is the world. It is all the carnality and evil to which fallen man is heir. It is every unholy and wicked practice. It is every false religion. Every supposed system of salvation which does not actually save and exalt man in the highest heaven of the celestial world. It is every church except the true church whether parading under a Christian or a pagan banner. I studied from that book. I had that book when I was at BYU. And, the, and, and I get emails saying, we never pick on other religions. You have it right here in the student manual. Bruce R. McConkie saying that the Christian churches are the church of the devil because they don't get man to exalt himself into the celestial realms. I mean, I don't make the stuff up. I cut my teeth on it. And, it, and people say, well, why do you get so angry? It's because I read all this stuff growing up. This stuff was taught to me, and then I find out differently. So please don't be too hard on me when you think I'm being prejudiced. I mean, I just look at what's there and report on the facts. Okay. Now, last week we talked about men being exalted. That was something that we had a conversation of. And one way that I tell how men view themselves is by what they allow to be done in their names. Now, I was tutored, many of you know, under a man named Chuck Smith. He started the Jesus movement among the hippies in the 1960s, and it turned into a great worldwide revival, actually. And there's thousands of Calvary chapels, which he started with six people, I think, back in Costa Mesa, California. And I've heard him say as recently as two months ago, when I die, if anybody suggests to put up a building and put my name on it, you can just tell them, forget it. I will roll over in my grave. I will tear the building down when I resurrect. Do not do that. Why? Because all glory is the Lord's. Well, I got BYU Magazine. We get the alumni magazine at the house. And here on the cover is the Gordon B. Hinckley building. And the subtitle to the article says, See the building fit to carry the name. See the building fit to carry the name. And then interestingly enough, below it, also inside, it tells about an article that's titled, BYU grads and the highest degrees of educational glory. I mean, this is the exaltation of man. That's what it's bent for. That's what their, all their purposes are. And it is contrary to the biblical text. All right, got that stuff covered. Um, Wanted to uh, cover quickly September Dawn. I went and saw the movie, and while I thought that it was well made, I thought that it was uh, personally felt it was over the top. I think that there was fanaticism, obviously. I think there was a terrible event that Mormons were involved in, and I personally believe Brigham Young knew about it. But I do think that they included things in the film that weren't necessary, and it, and it took it just over the top. So... Um, other people who I respect, they don't believe that. They liked it, and then others haven't. So that's just the September dawn review. That being said, let's have a word of prayer. Dear Lord, we thank you for the rain. 
We thank you for uh, this studio time, for the people who volunteer, the audience, and we pray for those who are watching. We pray for those who might just happen upon the program. Open their eyes and ears. Let them hear you come through. In Jesus' name, amen. Tonight, we begin part one on temples. The topic is extensive with a lot of respects which need to be considered. I anticipate this study to last two or three weeks uh, over the next few shows. For clarity's sake, I want to go way back to give us a foundation again on temples. Now, the word temple was first used in association with a place called a tabernacle. All right. And that's in 1 Samuel 1, 9. And the tabernacle was a portable and very small uh unit of tents that overlapped each other on a framework and it had small compartments an outer court an outer court an inner court and a holy of holies all right and we've covered this before but it was just a tent really the rites and rituals in the tabernacle are laid out explicitly in the book of leviticus if you want to read what happened in there what god commanded go to leviticus and you can read what happened in this temple uh, these including washing the priests through a, some, it's, uh, through a, a bath. The women have a thing called a mikvah. These, uh, these priests would have a bath in a laver, and uh, they would offer animal and vegetable sacrifices to God with specific requirements on what, what meat to burn, what to do with the fat, who, all these things. And the tabernacle was full of very symbolic furniture, it had tables of a certain length. It had gold of a certain way. It had bread in a certain way, candles in a certain way. And this all was representative and pointed to Jesus. Every bit of it pointed to Jesus that was in the tabernacle. There was only one tabernacle and one only, no matter how many children of Israel there were. They didn't multiply them to, so that other people, more priests could do it. There was one. Hundreds of years later, King David wanted to build God a permanent tabernacle, which was also called the temple. But because he was a man of blood or violence, God said, you're not doing it. So he spent his life gathering, his later part of his life, gathering up the most exquisite materials he could find, and he stored them all up in preparation for this building. And he wanted, uh, and he planned to build it on Mount Moriah, you can read about that in Chronicles if you don't trust me. Do a Google search on Mount Moriah and you'll see the significance of it. And it's on the east side of the city. Now Genesis tells us that Mount Moriah or this spot is the very place where Abraham was to sacrifice Isaac. This is a very symbolic and important spot in Israel, Mount Moriah. Okay. When it came to this permanent temple, there was only one in all of Israel. There is still only one to all of Israel today. And it was Solomon, David's son, that took all these materials and he put this thing together, not himself, in this grand splendor, all right? Even today, this is the only place the Jews recognize as worthy of the place for their temple on earth. That's why even Orthodox Jews who believe in the Word and believe in the Old Testament, the Tanakh, they do not practice animal sacrifice. And it is very, it's a part of their religious culture. It's part of Leviticus like you can't believe. But they're not even practicing it because they don't have a place to practice it officially. So uh, that's important, the location. Besides that, it's important to know 
that this location was small, all right? And Solomon wanted the grounds bigger. So he erected walls that were sometimes 200 feet high in order to put dirt behind them and pack the dirt down so it gave more area for the grounds of this temple site. Now, you know, anybody else would say, well, let's just move it to a place that has more grounds. They build a 200-foot wall and pack the dirt in because the location is so vitally important. First Kings tells us that Solomon's temple was put together under the, under the direction of skilled Phoenician builders and workmen. And in the fourth year of Solomon's reign, or about 480 years after the Exodus, many thousands of laborers and skilled artisans were employed in this work. And the stones were of huge dimension and were gradually placed to make the massive walls. They were fit together so closely and so perfectly, no mortar was used between them. All right. The sacredness of the building is very important too, and let me explain why. According to 1 Kings 6-7, no sound of hammer or axe was heard while they put this temple together. Okay, And that's very important, and I'm going to tell you why in a minute. In the autumn of the 11th year of his reign, Solomon's reign, seven and a half years after it had begun, the temple was completed with all its architectural magnificence and beauty. So holy was this edifice that it sat for 13 years untouched and unentered. It sat there, okay? If you read up, you'll see, and they think that the Jews may have did this because 13 uh, represented an age when boys, 12, 13, started to become men. They let that building sit there for 13 years, okay? At the close of these 13 years, preparations for a dedication were made and the temple uh, scale, it was just a magnificent celebration. The Ark of the Covenant, that's something that was designed specifically for the high priest to go in. Uh, and by the way, the LDS Church does not have the Ark of the Covenant. They don't possess it in one of the temples. The prophet doesn't go sit on it in order to receive revelation from God. And if they do have it, let's hear them tell us they have it. I say that because there, are, there, are, there have to be millions of elders, at least, if not maybe even some high priests, that believe the church has the Ark of the Covenant in the Salt Lake City Temple. I mean, let's just dispel that myth right now. But when the Ark of the Covenant was uh, put in this temple that Solomon built, the Spirit of the Lord, like a cloud, filled it, which was representative of the incarnation of Jesus Christ coming into a temple, His Spirit filling it and walking upon the earth. The Feast of the Dedication lasted seven days, followed by a Feast of the Tabernacle, and it marked a new era in the history of Israel. Okay, this permanent uh, temple, too, consisted of a porch area that was outside. All right, you can read about that in Kings, and that's where uh, other nations could come in, this porch area, but they wouldn't because the Jews then wouldn't let them. The holy place, and in the holy place was an altar it, There was a, for sacrificing animals, for burnt offerings there was an altar, and there was also a brazen sea, and there were ten labors for ceremonial washings. The oracle was the fourth part, the very center, and it was the place of the holy place where the dwelling place of God upon his visits. There was absolutely no endowment done in this temple on Mount Moriah, nor anything like it. Read Leviticus. There were absolutely no baptisms for the dead. That is a myth. They, they, not, they didn't even touch on that 
It wasn't even part of anything they ever talked about or discussed. And there were no ceilings or marriages for time and all eternity in, these t in this temple of ancient Israel. Outer court for the masses, inner court for the priests to wash and offer animal sacrifices, and the holy, and holy of holies furnished with the same table, candles, shoe bread, uh, and uh, whatever else, if I'm missing something, was in there. For the high priest to once a year go in and offer up blood uh, on the day of atonement for the sins of the people. The only thing done in LDS temples today that has any similarity whatsoever to what was done in the temple of ancient Israel are the washings and anointings that they do. But even there, the differences are just huge. For instance, when they did the anointings in the temple, they would take oil and pour it, pour it, pour it over the head so it dripped through the hair, dripped over the face, dripped down the neck, over the beard, the beard and just let it just go all over the place, all right? There was, no, there was no, none of this anointing where, you know, don't mess my hair up uh, kind of anointing. It was just an inundation. Why? Because the anointing of oil represented the anointing of the Spirit where it pours over you, okay? All this stuff is biblical. You can't take it and give a counterfeit and expect it to match because it doesn't, all right? The temple erected by Solomon was pillaged during the course of its history, and finally it was almost destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar, who took all the artifacts out of it and ran away with the gold and the beautiful things that Solomon put in there. But according to Ezra 1, 7 through 11, those things were all returned when the uh, Jews were released from captivity. By the time the Jewish exiles returned from Babylonian captivity, the temple had suffered considerably from natural decay and from being invaded. And in an effort to gain the, Jew, the favor of the Jews, Herod the Great stepped in and he said, I'd like to build your temple up. And this was about 12 or 13 years uh, before the birth of Christ. So we have this temple again being built up before the birth of Christ. And um, then we see 12 years later, Jesus visits this temple. Remember that? So we have, some, we have some important things going on with this, this uh, 12, 13 number. And I'm not trying to make it, I'm not spiritualizing it where uh, it's a, it stands on all four legs. But there's a sim symbolism there that I'm not sure I understand and the, and the scholars don't seem to understand. Herod's uh, temple was carried out at a great exercise of labor and expense. And it was insanely enormous and gaudy. And God's original, you know, uh, tent was, would suffice. You know, it sufficed for all the Jews. Solomon, they went out and gave God their best. That was fine. But Herod even took it a, a, a step further. And uh, this building of Herod's temple continued on even while Jesus was alive. They finished the one court uh, when he was about 10, but the building just continued on and on. I find this interesting because the building of that temple represents to me the work of man, which never ends. Man, man is constantly trying to make bigger and better, and it just wasn't God's way. Herod's temple was completed in 65 AD, and it was not permitted to exist for very long. Within 40 years after the Lord's crucifixion, his prediction of its overflow was accomplished, and the Roman legions took the city of Jerusalem by storm, and even though Titus tried very hard to keep that temple intact, um, the soldiers set fire to it in several places, and it was utterly destroyed. And it was never rebuilt. Okay. 
Several archaeological remains of Herod's stately temple have been found. It had two courts, one intended for the Israelites and one intended for the Gentiles. And in between those courts was a wall four and a half feet high. And above that wall, it says in the Bible, the New Testament, don't enter here. All right. Now, there was an archaeological finding in 1871 by M. Gano where he found stones in Greek capital letters at the temple site that says, quote, No stranger is to enter within the partition wall and enclosure around the sanctuary. Whoever is caught will be responsible to himself for his death, which will ensue, end quote. I bring this up because people who say the Bible is not a reliable source or there's no evidence, archaeological evidence for the things written in it. Here's a perfect archaeological evidence. Paul talked about the middle partition being broken down uh, by Jesus Christ. And this was probably the partition he was talking about. This four and a half feet wall that kept the Gentiles out and allowed the Jews to stay in. And the Gentiles would die if they entered in. Okay. The summit of Mount Moriah on which the temple stood is called the Harem es Sharif now, the sacred enclosure. You've probably seen it on the news or on a documentary about Islam. It is enclosed by a fence that's about 35 acres big. All right. At the center of the enclosure is a raised platform 16 feet above the surrounding space and paved with large stone slabs. And on it stands the Muhammad Mosque. Kubet Sakra, or Dome of the Rock. The mosque covers the site of Solomon's Temple, okay? So the Dome of the Rock there covers where Solomon's Temple was on Mount Moriah, where Abraham uh, was going to sacrifice Isaac. In the center of the dome, there's a bare projecting rock, just a little rock that comes up at the top, and it's the highest point of Mount Moriah, measuring 60 feet by 40 feet, and they just call it the Sakra, or the Rock. Who has the rights to Mount Moriah now? There's a, there's a constant battle between the Jews and, and the Israelis, I mean Jews and Islam, as to who gets it, okay? It is believed that there is going to be this struggle for that piece of property until a very charming, handsome, well-dressed, white suit and tie, just kidding, a man is going to come up. And he's going to present a plan where people are going to go, wow, you've settled this difference. And he's going to let the temple of the Jews be built again. And Christians know him to be called the Antichrist. All right. All this is biblical, all focused on the temple that we read about in the Old Testament and New. Now, in the New Testament, the word temple is used figuratively for the body of Jesus. All right. John 2.19 Jesus says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews said, 46 in years it took us to build this temple, and you're going to raise it up in three days. And he spake of the temple of his body. It's an interesting comment, is it? That we have this, this temple of Israel, and then Jews, and Jesus is saying, hey, destroy this temple, and in three days I'm going to raise it up. But it makes sense that everything was a type and a picture of Jesus in the Old Testament especially the temple. So where men and women could come to a physical place of worship and offer sacrifice in pre-Jesus years, once he came, it now makes sense that we come and worship him in a spiritual place. The physical places were all of the old. The spiritual place, since Jesus came and died, is now what reigns. 1 Corinthians 3.16 call believers the temple of God too. Okay? So we have the Old Testament, we have Jesus, and now we have believers called the temple of God. 
How is this? It's a spiritual place, not a physical one. You see, the reason in 1 Kings 6-7 that there is no sound of a hammer or an axe heard in creating this temple is because it's a perfect picture of spiritual rebirth that occurs in believers today. It was a picture. And this, this temple that was made by hands had such a sacred nature that it had no sound in it being built by axes and hammers, which are the tools of men. It was silent because that is how spiritual transformation occurs. And this is where we meet God today, in our spirit, not in a physical place. We were, when we were created as new creatures in Christ, there is no hammering, there is no axes, there are no nails. It's a spiritual without the constructs. Ancient Israel's temple was a picture with the end in mind. God will ultimately dwell in us, a house made without hands. Listen, 2 Corinthians 6.16. For ye are the temple of the living God. Did you hear that? That's from the Bible. You are the temple of the living God. As God hath said, listen, I will dwell in them. I will walk in them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. You don't walk in a building anymore. You don't go to that building to meet God. He is with you in you when you have been cleansed. 2 Corinthians 5 one says, For we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, we have a building God, not house made with hands. Okay, um, uh, excuse me, and house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Just as God once dwelled in the Holy of Holies and in the temple of ancient Israel, and just as God once dwelled on earth in the body of Jesus Christ, God now dwells in us, in the temple, in our flesh, when we've been spiritually cleansed by the atoning blood of Jesus Christ. Temples are not needed. He doesn't visit, visit us temporarily in a holy of holies either. Okay. But in and through faith, he is with us all the time. The church uh, in the book of Ephesians, finally wrapping this up, it also says that the temple is also the church, a body of believers. And it talks about us that we are built upon a foundation of apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ being the cornerstone. That foundation isn't shifting and we're constantly building it. It was laid when Jesus and his apostles came. That foundation is there. And upon that, what does it say? It says, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth into an holy temple of the Lord, in whom ye also are builded together for a habitation of God through the Spirit. It's saying that we have this foundation of apostles and prophets, and we become the blocks fit together as believers in a habitation of Spirit. Do you see that, my LDS friends who are secretly watching? You, these buildings are just a way to get you to pay tithing and to conform to these legalistic things that they want you to do. It traps you. It puts you in chains. And God does not like this whatsoever. He's not for it. It's a system of the world. So we have a double whammy of believers today. We are his temple. And then when we get together with other believers, the church is his temple as well. All right. So let me just cover this and we'll go to the phones. We have a biblical perspective of temples, which we're going to build on next week as we talk about the LDS perspective and start to reveal and show you how these things are so contrary. In ancient Israel's tabernacle, in King Solomon's glorious edifice, 
King Herod's splendorific construction of the time. In the Lord's body, individual members, the corporate body today, and then Revelation also talks about the temple being heaven. Okay? All temples of old were uh, places of sacrifice of blood. And let me just finalize this with this last point. Animal sacrifices were offered in ancient Israel all the way through up to King Herod's uh, temple. Okay? Animal sacrifices and blood. The temple of the body of our Lord, a sacrifice and blood. Okay? Uh, the body of individual believers. What does Paul say? He says, by the mercies of God, present your bodies a living sacrifice. We continue to give our lives as living sacrifices to God. All right, we're the temple. We also are living sacrifices to him. The collective body of the church, it offers up its sacrifices constantly. It gives its time and its offerings in the worship of our lips. The Bible says the worship of our lips is a way, a form of sacrifice. All of these, and, 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 and then when you look to the heavens, which is a temple, it took the sacrifice of the Lord to get us there. All right, the sacrifices for the temple that are spotting the lands today, that, that, that is not inconsistent with the biblical approach of what it is. So let's go to the phones, 801-973-8820. That's uh, a preface for temples to prepare us to talk about the LDS history of temples and then what they're doing today with them. 801-973-TV20. We have Heather, first time caller on line one. Heather, you're on Heart of the Matter. Yeah. Hi. Hi, Heather. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing well. What's happening? Um, okay. I was actually, I had a question. Are you going to talk about at any point um, the racial discrimination that was taught in the church? Yes. We will get to uh, blacks in the priesthood and how that came about. And we're going to get to it when we get to Brigham Young because he's the one who said the most uh, outlandish stuff about it. So that's going to be our timing of it. Okay, so just within the next few shows? No, it's going to be, we're in, uh, well, we're in September. Probably won't be till toward uh, beginning of November. Okay, and then um, my friend has a comment. Can I give the phone to her just for a second? Yeah. Okay, here you go. Thank you. I keep waiting for the must. <laughs> Hi, is this Sean? It is. Hi, um, I'm a 56-year-old white woman, and I have two biracial children, uh, my daughter's 30, and my son's 26. And I had my daughter back in 1977, before the uh, blacks were so-called accepted in the church. And I just, you cannot believe the the prejudice and the, the racism that I have endured. I mean, I when my daughter was born, I would take her in the grocery store, and people would see us, you know, her in the basket and me strolling through the store. They would go get whoever was in the store with them so that they could come and stare at us both. Oh. And I would just say, hey, uh, don't you wish your kid was this good looking? <laughs> I mean, my, my children are gorgeous. They're beautiful. I bet they I, are. I wouldn't have my babies any other color. Wow. And I just can't believe that these so-called religious people that call them, that, that hide under the cloak of religion, Mormonism, have the audacity to call themselves Christ-loving people when they judge everybody and everything. I grew up 
my mom and dad were not religious. We were, I was, you know, baptized Mormon, but my mom and dad didn't go to church with us, but they would make my me and my sister go to church because all the kids in the neighborhood went to church. Mm-hmm. And, um, but they never went to church with us because my dad smoked cigarettes and stuff. And we were treated like the black sheep. I mean, my sister got pregnant back in 1964, and you cannot believe how they chastised me. I was 13 years old, and that was the last time I stepped foot in the Mormon church. Let me, and can, can I've I... had my name removed from the records. I have it framed in my bedroom. I took the letter, and I burnt the edges, and I have it framed in a black frame because I did not want to die a Mormon. Listen, I I hear your passion. Those are very painful, extremely painful realities when men try to form religion and make all kinds of rules. You know God's not part of any of that. But let me ask you something. What's happened in your heart now? How are you doing now? Are you a Christian? Have you come to know the Lord? Or have you thrown everything out as a result of this? I threw everything out. I believe in karma, and that's how I taught my kids. I raised my kids believing that what you do for other people will come back to you tenfold. And you do not. My kids never made fun of, like, handicapped people. I understand. I understand. I just, I had to press through and just kind of find out. Will you do me a favor and stay on the line and let us get your, just let me send you my book, please. Yeah, well, yeah, I'd like, you know, I, I think that there is something, but I don't know what it is. Well, let me send you the book. I'm, stay on the line, and let's move the calls ahead, but let stay on the line. They'll get your address, and we'll send it out to you. All okay? right, cool, dude. Thank you. God bless. So, your show rocks, man. Me, me and my girlfriend get together every Tuesday night and drink beer and watch you, brother. <laughs> Thank you so much. God bless you. I'll, we'll get Stay on the line. Okay. Yeah, karma blesses me, baby. Shit. Uh, okay, okay. Uh, line one, someone pick that up and get that phone number. We're going to Trudy on uh, first-time caller from Salt Lake City. Trudy, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hey, Sean, how's it going? I'm doing well. How are you? Good. I just had a quick question for you, and then I'll just take your answer off the air. Oh, okay. Um, an acquaintance of mine um, who's uh, recently just left the LDS Church, I don't want to say too much because it is about temple ceremonies. Okay. But um, during washing and anointing, she was anointed on the head by a female. Uh-huh. And so she was really confused at the time, you know, because uh-huh. only priesthood holders are allowed to do that. So we were just kind of wondering if women can hold the priesthood in some way or That's a great why, question. why they did that. You sure you want to hang up? Yeah, I will. Okay. Thanks. Thanks for the call, Trudy. Uh-huh. Bye. Bye. Uh, in the early days of the church, women uh, were allowed to do a number of things that were related to the priesthood. Uh, they laid their hands on the sick. They uh, would anoint each other. They would even anoint some men. There were certain women in early uh, history, I think Eliza Snow kind of headed it up, where uh, they were the prolific tongue speakers, and uh, they would lay their hands night and day on people. I think it was probably uh, around the Brigham Young years when this started to be curtailed. And then as the church moved to a more clerical system of organization, it became verboten to the point where all the way up, I believe, until 1975, women weren't even allowed to 
uh, pray in the sacrament meetings. Now, you may not know this, but that is the case. Look at your history. A woman could not pray in the sacrament meeting. So uh, it went kind of from one extreme to this to another. But in the temple, uh, the women were allowed to share in the priesthood of their husbands or maybe of God if they weren't married. I don't know if you have to be married to do the washings and anointings. And the women are the ones who carried out that, that with women. So it was a perplexing thing, but they were allowed to do that. And, and that just falls in line to me with someday the women in the LDS church are going to have some kind of priesthood. You never looked at General Conference years ago and saw women on the screen. It was a sea of men in white suits. And now you, go, you have the women in their business suits, you know, and they're there and they have their president of the Relief Society and president of the primary. And, and they've always had them, but now they really are starting and they're t talking in conference and all this. This is relatively new stuff. And I think ultimately we will see women have some sort of priesthood because the Mormon church knows how to survive and they will do whatever it takes to do so. All right, I hope that helps you. Uh, we are going to Raul in Miami, Florida. Raul, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hi, Sean. How are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you? Doing real good. Calling from Miami, Florida. Uh, first time calling. And just want to thank you so much for letting me be on. Um, I read your book, and I was very, very impressed with it and very inspired by it. It helped me a lot oh, in my you. life. And uh, I'm a born-again Mormon. Uh -huh. And I left the church about five years ago. Uh -huh. And since then, I've uh, become a Christian. And currently I'm going to college now to get my degree in Christian ministry. Wow, good for you. One question I had was, because uh, I'm not very knowledgeable on some things, and I wanted to find out, Stephen Covey. Yes. They teach a, they're teaching a course in college about time management. Yeah. And they're using his books. Yeah. And I had a question about that to see what you thought about, is that something that Christians should be using, um, especially at a Christian university? Wow, Raul, that's a good question. It's, an it's funny, too. It's almost like, should we have a Mormon president? You know, can, that, can, because they're Mormon, can they govern? Uh, Stephen Covey is a, uh, you know, he wrote The Seven Habits and uh, got fame to that. And then uh, Covey merged with Franklin Planners and, and it became Franklin uh, Covey Franklin or Franklin Covey. Yeah. And he, even here in Salt Lake, they have a Franklin Covey Field, I think it's called, uh, for baseball. But uh, they are a world uh, force, and they are good at their planning. And so I guess, uh, but you know, what's interesting about those books is there's a lot of LDS philosophy that runs through them. And uh, when you start adopting these methods, if you really read Seven Habits closely, it's pretty much a Mormon, uh, Mormon doctrine without Jesus. <laughs> so uh, I don't know about whether Christians should follow it or not. It's a question I haven't thought of or... Yeah. What's your thought? Well, the thing is, there's two things that came up with it. One was that none of the people knew that he was Mormon. Either the professor, no one believed me when I when I and then I just showed them the next class. I went on the internet and showed them wow. his different books. And then um, the other thing was they didn't believe about the philosophies I was trying to show them about. In your book, you talk about the laws of matter, and um, I showed them that, and they were like, "Wow!" So they really started like coming out. Yeah. That's for sort of understanding more. Hey, that's a really good parallel because, you know, with their concern for time and everything, and all their, that, not, that's an ultimate materialist guidebook, and it plays right into their theology of matter always existing and becoming gods and everything else. I mean, if you learn to manage time here with a Franklin planner, maybe you'll be able to have a Franklin planner for the universe someday. Yeah. <laughs> you have to be good uh, time management if you can be a god, I guess. Yeah. 
Hey, great call, Raul. Thanks so much, and thanks for reading the book. Thank you, Sean. God bless. Bye-bye. We're going to Bill, first-time caller. Bill, you're on Heart of the Matter. Yeah. Hey, Bill. Yeah, first-time caller. Hey, I just got a question for you. Yes. Now that you're no longer LDS, I'm just wondering, uh, what does your family think of you as well as your in-laws? I mean, are you ostracized now, or is that, I can imagine that maybe someone uncomfortable at the birthday parties or at the family reunions, uh, you know, are you still yeah. family or are you kind of left out now? And, and even with your neighbors as well. I'm sure it's no secret as to who you are and what you do and well, um, you talk about. It's good you brought this up because we have new viewers all the time. Really quickly, uh, I left the church because I came to know the Lord and I didn't leave until I knew him and he led me out. But that's all described in the book or on the website. But the family thing, it happened like there was a knee-jerk reaction of real disdain and anger and calling me a devil and things by my brother and, and stuff. And then time has let them see that uh, I'm a changed man. And, uh, and so our relationships are better, but they're not perfect. They still are 100% Mormon. And whenever they have some kind of gathering and we go to it, that always starts coming up. And so that, that, that comes difficult. As far as where we live in California, uh, we, uh, we get some treatment out there sometimes by people, and, uh, but that's just the way it goes, and they're just like in any religion. I guess if you were a good Baptist and you lived in the South and you left being a Baptist, you'd probably have Baptists treat you kind of funny, and that happens too, but I just kind of uh, size that up to, uh, to religion in and of itself because there are Latter-day Saints who treat, treat us very well and don't care what I do. Does that help? That, that absolutely helps. Hey, I sure appreciate it, Sean. All right, man. Thanks for calling. All right. Talk to yeah. you later. Bye-bye. We're going to Joanne in West Valley City. Joanne, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hi, Sean. Hi. I don't know if you remember me, but I've been watching you from the beginning. But I wanted to know if you could ask your listeners to pray for my little grandson. He's four years old. His name is Jamari Rantz, and he's got to have brain surgery September 25th. Oh, I am I am so sorry. Is uh what's his name again? Damari Grant. Damari? Mhm. Grant? Yes. Well, we'll ask our listeners right now. They just heard that and uh, just include him in your prayers. He's having brain surgery and is he uh, does he have cancer or something? No, he was injured last year and I guess now they think he's got an aneurysm in one of his blood vessels. Is, it keeps getting bigger, and they've got to go in and correct it. Okay, Joanne, we'll include that. We'll put that on our prayer requests on the website, and uh, so people will see that, and they'll include him on him there. Okay, I appreciate you so much, and God bless you. God bless you, Joanne. Thanks. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye. Okay, let's go to Jason in North Salt Lake. Jason, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hey, how you doing? Hey, Sean, there's a book that came out. Um, this is Jason from North Salt Lake, by the way. Woohoo! Anyways, there was a book that came out. I can't remember if it was just a couple years ago. It's um, like a biography. It's about Joseph Smith's life. It's something called um, titled, oh, what is it? So You don't know my past like you do or something. It's some, no Man Knows My History? Yeah. In that book, I haven't read it or seen it, so I'm just going by rumor. Is it true that he claims that he was an old prophet of the Bible? Is uh, that true? I don't think he claimed he was an old prophet of the Bible, but he did include his name in the Bible as someone that they looked forward for him to come and, uh, and restore the truth to the earth. 
I was going to say, you know, that sounds like uh, reincarnation. I thought they didn't believe that. Really quick, in 1978, the reason why the Mormons um, let blacks in was because... Um, the Brazil Temple? Acts, yeah, the, the, the um, academic BYU was going to get kicked out. The oh. schools around the nation didn't want them in because of the racism. So BYU, or BYU, two weeks later, the prophet stood up and said, I had a vision, we should let blacks in. It was because of an academic for the school to compete in sport. That's why wow. I've seen footage and documentary on it. I mean, really old stuff, and I was laughing. We'll, Kane, we'll, we'll check was, that one out, my brother. Hey, if Kane was Bigfoot really quick, then who's the abominable snowman in Loch Ness Monster? <laughs> Talk to you later. Bye. Bye. Uh, uh, okay, we're going to Leah, first-time caller in Salt Lake. Leah, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hi. I Hi. have a question about the blood sacrifices that you were talking about. Yes. Um, was it, isn't it true that, uh, that uh, when Jesus came to earth and, and after Jesus died that he was the final blood sacrifice? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. okay. But there's a caveat to that. And this is going to open up a whole big bunch of doors to the people who are premillennialists, amillennialists, postmillennialists, no millennialists, and that is there is some references in the Old Testament that talk about animal sacrificing once again coming back for the house of Israel, not for the Gentiles, for a period of time. And uh, that's going to be an indicator of what happens once the temple is rebuilt on Mount Moriah. There's question as to why that will happen, a restoration of all things, something like that. But um, that animal sacrifice has nothing to do with the propitiation of sin. It's just a practice that they did as the children of Israel, God's covenant people. Okay. Does that help? Yeah, that helps. Thanks, thanks. Th thanks for the call. Okay. Okay, bye-bye. Listen, I, we have a, a couple things. Sean, could you please repeat the info about Grant Palmer tonight? Grant Palmer's book, I think that's what you're asking, is called An Insider's View of Mormon Origins. Uh, signature books, I'm pretty sure, and you can get that at almost any bookstore or order it online. We have an email from, um, uh, actually it's from Andrew, and he's an inmate at the Utah State Prison. I don't know how this got to me. It came through somebody else, but it says, according to the book of Hebrews, Rachel the harlot lied to guards that were looking for two men hiding in the roof. She is declared righteous because she did lie. God could have blinded the guard's eyes and she would not have needed to lie. Why was she declared righteous because of the lie? You said no one has gained anything by lying, but it appears she did. Help me understand this. Andrew, out there in the prison. By the way, God bless you and our prayers are with you. To all of you guys who are behind bars, pray that the Lord will lead you out and help you uh, in this life. Uh, the answer, Andrew, is she was not declared righteous because she lied. Um, remember, she, was, she hid children of Israel and uh, she lied to wicked men on her own. That was her currency dealing with her own people. It wasn't because she lied that she was declared righteous and faithful. It was because she stood up for the children of Israel and she allowed those men to live and that's why they allowed her and her family to live. Nowhere in that uh, context of that story does God tell her, I think it's Rahab by the way, it does, does not tell her to lie. Uh, she does this on her own, and uh, she was counted faithful for having um, uh, hid these righteous men when the wicked men were after her, okay? I don't think God liked the lie. He couldn't. It's diametrically opposed for a God of virtue, righteousness, and holiness 
to also lie or even tell people to lie. It's incongruent. It can't, it's like oil and water, lightness and dark. He does not stand for lies. The father of lies, Jesus said, is Satan. Always remember that when you're reading the word and you'll see God's ways versus man's ways, okay? Uh, we got Cindy and Bountiful first time caller. I promise to get to these emails, but Cindy, let's go to you. Cindy, you're on Heart of the Matter. Oh, Sean, I'm so happy to finally get to talk to you. I just started watching last week, and this is my, uh, my second time watching, but my first time calling. My question is, last week you had talked about being a Christian. Well, let me get, let me get right to my, my question. In, I was speaking to one of your gals that answered the phone, and she was telling me how at the end of, I believe it's Revelations, how, you know how LDS people have added on the Book of Mormon? Right. What my question is, why, if it says in the Bible to not add on to the book, is it add words to the book, or is it add on to the book? Exactly how does that read? I, I've got my Bible, so I'm just kind of waiting to see where, where I'm going to find this. But why would, I guess my question is, so I had a discussion with a friend last week who is LDS, and I said, well, it says in the Bible that you weren't supposed to add on to the book. Or but haven't they done that? I mean, yeah, but, I, I'm not I, I guess I'm trying to be clear of what it exactly says. Well, let me, let me explain it to you, Cindy. Okay. Um, it's, it's not a good argument for Christians to use that with Latter-day Saints in saying, you know, the, the last book of Revelation, it, it, it says that. Because we don't know that the, that the men who put the Bible together were inspired to put revelation at the end. Now, I believe they were, but that is not in the text to tell us that they were. We know that the, the word is the word of God, but that, that scripture at the end, the book of Revelation is called the book of Revelation. It was one revelation, and it was given to John on the Isle of Patmos, and after that revelation was given to him, he received 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John by revelation, which he wrote later. So we know that it has to, what, what we're talking about is the chronological positioning of Revelation at the end of the book. So it's not a good argument to use on Latter-day Saints because if they know their stuff, they could use that. Also, it says the same thing in Deuteronomy, that you're not to add or take away from the words of this book. So the, here's the thing though, Cindy. If the Book of Mormon was God's word, and if it was congruent with the Bible, then we could accept that. But God gave special witnesses called apostles who were firsthand witnesses of his son. And when those firsthand witnesses had written their account, there's no need for more because we have the firsthand witnesses of Jesus, which is what all the Old Testament pointed to. And then we have the Holy Ghost coming at the day of Pentecost. When the Holy Ghost dwells in you, you don't need additional scripture. You have God himself guiding you in your life. The Latter-day Saints have taken that and said, we don't care about all those factors. We're going to add on scripture because nowhere does it say you can't have extra. It doesn't say anywhere that you, you, can't, uh, you can't run naked through the Super Bowl in the Bible either. But we don't do it. Because, right, right. All right. So I'm, I'm just giving, kind of giving you a warning. And when it comes to using that uh, tactic with them, I wouldn't use it. But what I would use is say, why do you need extra books when we have the Bible, first-hand witnesses, and you have the Holy Spirit to guide you? Right, right. Well, like you said about tonight, the temples. Exactly. On temples. See, I see this is where I get so frustrated. And, I, oh, I wish I had your knowledge in my brain and cat. Oh, mouth. you do. You do. <laughs> hey, stay on the line. Let us send you up my book. 
I would absolutely love that. Thank you so much, Sean. Okay, Cindy, take care. Nice to talk to you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Hold on. All right, we're going to one last caller, Eli in Logan, first-time caller. Elijah. Hi. Hey, you're on the air. Oh, hi, uh, Sean. Where am I? Uh, this is a first-time caller. I'm actually from Canada, and I'm visiting Logan. Hello, Canadian man. Young preacher from uh, Canada with Brad Schelke from Oasis Books. He brought me in. And oh, yeah. You know, we're preaching on the universities uh, here in uh, Utah State and University of Utah. But I said a question about uh, uh, supposing that Jesus didn't come back in, uh, in 100 years, what do you see as the future of the, of the Mormon church in 100 years? What do you think the Mormon church will look like? Uh, I personal belief, again, you guys, this is just Sean McCraney, but I believe the, the LDS church is a humanist organization at heart. I think they, uh, so I think in a hundred years we would see them as representing the world, both in business and in, uh, in, in a kind of a theocracy that they would tie in business with religion like they do now. And everything, they would tie in as much of the world into, into Mormonism as they could. And I think that would play out into being having a paid, uh, paid clergy. I think women will have some kind of a priesthood. I think homosexuals will be allowed to be in the church and uh, hold office and do all those things. I think it will become a very humanistic organization. I think that's what we'd see if it, if it remained. Oh, so you st do you think it will still be around in 100 years? I don't know. 100 years, 50 years, I, don't, I have no I, I pray that it falls to its doctrinal knees now and uh, it actually becomes uh, like the worldwide church of God, turns to Christ and uh, repents of its past, opens up, is honest, and teaches its members to be born again and follow Jesus. Amen. Yeah. Thank you. Hey, thanks for the call. Yeah, thank you. God bless you. Bye-bye. In preparation, in preparation for the, the show that's following mine, Breakdown, they're taking away the cameras. I, I mean, I had one here, now I'm down to one camera. Do you see how they treat you? So be prepared to watch Breakdown. It's going to come two minutes after I point at the camera and say goodbye. Breakdown's coming. We've been waiting for it. It's going to be a great show. It's going to help change uh, the tenor and picture of... Uh, of TV 20, so we're really grateful for it. So stay tuned, and you can join us 20, 30 minutes later at Denny's on 5th South in downtown Salt Lake City for Pastor in the Pub. We're still calling it that. By the way, Lord's Word, we meet every Sunday at 9.15 at the Gateway Theater uh, in downtown Salt Lake City for an hour. We also meet at the University of Utah at 7 to 8 p.m. Go to the website, www.lordsword.org, if you want more information about that. Um, also want to tell you, you can go to our website if you have comments, criticisms. You go to www.bornagainmormon.com. And we have uh, all the past shows are up there. You can watch most of them if they've been downloaded. You can also go to the uh, message board, the forum, and vent and voice your opinion ad nauseum. And I'll respond to you there. So God bless you. We'll see you next week for Temples Part 2. See you then. I'm on a ride, going nowhere I am an existential cowboy on the wind And I won't be coming out, I'm going in The 
This man's awake A storm's arising The dawn's awaiting Till a hundred monkeys know And I can feel the light 